Hey guys, thank you so much for stopping by Legend Church's weekly podcast. Just a quick reminder, you can check us out at legendchurch.com, find us on Facebook and Instagram, and Sunday mornings in Madisonville. But hey, without further ado, set the cruise control, start Matt Run, or grab a drink, and let's talk about all things Jesus. I'm just playing. Hey, it's good to see you guys. Um, so we've been in this sermon series for the since uh, the new year, where we've just been thinking about like big words. Um, I heard a podcast that said um, that said uh, words don't have meanings; meanings have words. And we're always trying to take words and apply them to like big meanings in our life, which was really helpful for me as a way to think. And so we've just pl- been playing with various words, and um, inadvertently they just sort of had a flow. Like grace led to confession, confession led to sin. And sin leads us to saved today. And as part of our introduction, inadvertently, because we don't plan things, Justin and I just started sniping at each other as our introduction to each sermon. Just like taking subtle pot shots as we passive-aggressively work out differences between us um, because we're a healthy, well-balanced work team. And, um, and I had one lined up. I actually had one that, that I start, if I started it right now, Justin would get up and leave the room. If I started telling you about a bow and arrow shot... <laughs> And, and, my friend, and my friend Justin knows, he knows that I only do this to irritate him because he's right. But if we're across the room and I start this story, he beelines to tell the truth. Um, but I can't do that. <laughs> I've got video. Um, so I can't do that because Justin got up here last week and outed himself as being anti-vax, saying that COVID wasn't real, and then he, t- then he told everybody that the Barbie movie stunk, and then he suddenly, and then he, he used his massive power as a movie podcaster to make sure that Margot Robbie didn't get any Academy nominations this week. And so pray for your brother Justin, who is just red-pilled like a Twitter comment section right now. Um, and I've been, I can't make it any worse than where he's at, you guys. Um, as the non-controversial pastor... At legend, as the one who generally keeps his opinions to himself, I was I was hoping Justin would learn. Um, but man, I there's some no, no, I'm not. There's so many rabbit trails. Um, anyway, so to step back from that, um, this week we picked up this word saved. Um, I think I've told you guys a story that when Kim and I were in college, I worked at the dining hall, which all with all the like um, townies. And um, there was a woman there, very sweet, who decided that I wasn't saved. I wasn't Christian enough. And so they invited me and Kim to go to their tent revival at their little church just outside of Oxford, Ohio. Cool, man, I grew up Presbyterian. I go to church. I'm not scared of church. They pick us up in like this 1994 Dodge Laser that has two seats and then two seats. And then there's a center console and they had their newborn infant in a car seat just rocking on the center console, not buckled in or anything. I was like we're all going to die here. Um, and then they drove us like a bat out of hell, 250 miles an hour through like, uh, like outside of like Oxford. I don't even know what you call the suburbs of Oxford, Ohio. Um, but they drive us through this and we pull up to this little church. And I think it was the town called, I think it was Seven Mile. Um, I don't remember what the name of the town was. And we go into this church and they are a rock and roll band. I mean, like, 
loud and energetic. Everybody's got hands up. Everybody's singing. You sit down. There are not Bibles in the pews. There are copies of End Times magazine. Um, it turned out that at that time, Bill Clinton was the Antichrist. Um, but but Ronald, Ronald Reagan was too, so I appreciated that they were nonpartisan. And, um, and so we're sitting there, and I, can't, I cannot emphasize enough how Presbyterian I am. We want things done orderly. We want things done thoughtfully. We want things done probably quietly. These people are snake handlers as it goes. And so we're sitting there, and Kim and I are like, what is going on? And then they notice that we're not speaking in tongues or raising our hands, and so they decide to fix that by calling us up to the front, making us get on our knees in front of this altar, and then say, Jesus is Lord, as loud as we can, and we're tongue-tied. Then they're like, hallelujah, they spoke in tongues. And I was like, no, we did not. No, we did not. And then the preacher at that church just decided that we can't be saved. The Holy Spirit just said, now. If that was true about me, every one of us would go, yeah, probably, right? Sure. But we all like Kim, so that doesn't make any sense in that system. It was the most awkward car ride home because these people had to drive us home. They had to ride home with people who the God, who God, the God of the universe had rejected, that God had said, no thanks. And that has set in motion an anxiety and a fear for me that probably was already there of just being sure that, man, I am not good enough for God. I am not good enough for anyone. Maybe I'm not saved. Man, maybe my Pentecostal brothers and sisters got it right. Maybe my Holy Roller folks, or maybe they're the ones that got it right. So much so that I spent the rest of, year, my, year, the rest of my life studying this and trying to figure out <laughs> if I'm right or wrong on this. Um, what's it mean to be saved? Right? If those folks had a test, if you could speak in tongues, right? If, if the Holy Spirit had gifted you with the gift of speaking in tongues, you were saved. You had a deposit of the Holy Spirit that looked exactly like it looked like in the book of Acts. The Bible's a good standard, a good benchmark to judge by, right? What does it mean to be saved? And it has a particular connotation depending on what tradition you grew up in, what background you're from, what sort of like family wounds you're carrying, whatever it is, right? I will not answer this question to your satisfaction today. Because now we're into like the, the, you know, the, the bigger word here, the theology word is salvation. Soteriology is the Bible study part of this. How, what's it mean to be saved? What are you saved from? What are you saved to? How are you saved? How do you know? And we should spend the rest of our lives meditating on this question. Today, I wanted to give us a brief outline, just a way to think about this that hopefully, hopefully doesn't leave you leaving here wondering why God rejected you. There will be a chance to speak in tongues at the end of the service. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you, didn't, if you grew up in a denominational church, like a mainline church, and you've never been to a place where speaking in tongues is normal, it is a wild experience. I'm not judging it because I like freak shows. And I like when things are real weird. I like when anything's out of the, out of the ordinary. I did not mean freak show pejoratively there. Um, it's a weird experience that you will not be ready for if you've never experienced it. But, um, man, if that happens to you today, so much the better. Um, let me pray, and then I will stop running around down rabbit trails. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you that you have saved us. Thank you that you are saving us. Thank you that you will save us. Lord, give us the peace and the trust to rely on you. 
Help us to stop looking at ourselves. Lord, help us to come to you as the author, the builder, the healer, and the maintainer of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, when I started to this today, um, or this week, if you go to the Old Testament for salvation language, or if you go to the Gospels, so you know the Bible is divided up into multiple parts, if you go to the Old Testament or the Gospels for the word saved or salvation, it almost always means one of two things. It almost always either means a physical healing from a malady. So like, when at, like most of the time in the Gospels, when you see somebody is saved, they're saved from a physical sickness by an act of Jesus so that Jesus can prove that he has the, the authority to forgive sins. Like those things, that it's that chain of command of that word. Jesus heals somebody which is a miraculous thing, so that you know he can do this, that means he can forgive sins. That's the God, all the Gospels. The Old Testament will also use the phrase for healing, but then it will also use the phrase meaning like a deliverance from a physical enemy. So you get saved from Babylon, or you get saved from Egypt, or whatever it is. Never, not never, very rarely in the Old Testament or in the Gospels is the word saved used to refer to some like far-off spiritual state of not being in the judgment of God or not being whatever it is, right? Whatever you think about that is when you're disembodied angels floating around in the clouds. Paul is the one who takes the metaphor of deliverance from enemies or the story of deliverance from enemies and healing of sickness and makes them spiritual. And so the word saved, 50% of its usage in the Bible is in Pauline works. This is Paul's idea. And what has happened is that the, the new church, the, the, this new entity that comes into being, Paul is trying to make sense of what it is that Jesus has done. What does it matter that Jesus went to the cross? What does it matter that God himself died? And what does it matter that he was resurrected? What happened to the state of the world when the, in that that package of events. And Paul looks and he says, he says, we've been saved. We've been saved. And this might be, out of all the ones we've talked about, this might be the most off-putting concept in the world that we live in today. It hurts to hear that I might need to be saved, that I'm not good enough as I am. Right? That's a lot. Because we put out for everybody else that we're doing okay. We put out for everybody else that everything's fine, that I'm killing it. Here's my Instagram feed. I only show good things, right? We have an image we portray to people, but lurking back in the back of our hearts and minds should always be this notion, man, something's not right in the world. And part of that something not being right in the world is something's not right with me. Um, and Justin, like, introduced that concept last week of sin, right? That, that when we're square with ourselves... And when we are in the presence of a holy God, we do have to come to something that says, mm, I need some work. I need some work. And so Paul has taken that concept and applied it to the death and said the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Not the teachings of Jesus. The death and the resurrection of Jesus has saved us 
has saved us from a holy and judgmental and righteous God. And man, that's hard to hear. Let me counterbalance the difficult part of that to hear to say that if we believe that God is good, if we believe that God is love, if we believe that God is holy, then we also have to believe that God looks at the world and says, that's not the way it's supposed to be. A good, holy, loving, righteous God could not look at the world we live in right now and say, yeah, that's fine. God looks at our world and says, I've given you enough resources to make sure everybody has food and people still starve to death. And God said, I've given you enough resources so that everybody can have housing and people sleep on the sidewalk. I've given you enough that everybody can flourish and everybody can thrive and everybody's not flourishing and thriving. A holy, righteous, and good God says, this has got to get fixed or people need to be saved. Right? And so we, as people who are people of Jesus, and a couple weeks ago we talked about confession, we have to come into agreement with a holy God about that. And what's it mean? What's it mean for us to be saved? And so the, the idea for Paul, and I think for Jewish brothers and sisters, is, is there's this sort of thing of the wrath of God at the universe in, in front of us. And the wrath of God is almost always God giving us what we want. So when you see, especially in the Old Testament, the wrath of God is almost always the people who just have decided to go their own way. They've decided they wanted to, God has said do this, we're going to do this. And God says, cool, you are, you are sovereign beings. Go do that and see how it works out, right? And that wrath, the wrath is the punishment that comes from that. And like to hold on to a phrase, I was, uh, a book I read, the idea, I grew up sure that I was going to be punished for my sins, right? I came from like a disciplinarian household, where like nothing was handled healthily. Um, and so you got punished, right, real hard for things. And this idea that I read that really stuck with me is the idea that we're not punished by, for our sins, we're punished by our sins. So the things that we do that are uh, like sideways with the will of God, those things hurt because we're not supposed to be sideways with God. That, man, one minute through the wrath of God, that should take the rest of our lives to think about and study about. But let's get to, because there is good news. There is good news, and I think we forget the good news. In a world where we pretend like we're okay and like everything else is okay, in a world where we pretend like, oh, this is easy, and everybody's love, and everything's happy, blah, blah, blah. When we diminish the evil that exists in the world, then there's no need for good news. The good news is that the God of the universe has a way for things to be and is working to restore creation so that everyone can thrive. And that starts with us. And one of the things that I really like about the way Paul does is so this concept, this salvation concept, is a major split place in the church. Church is split over this concept a lot because Paul is not consistent Paul speaks in multiple ways and in multiple depths about this. And churches want to make this, because we're people, we want to make it a program. You have to do X, then Y, then Z, then you're saved. And then you go get other people who do X, Y, Z, then saved, and you keep doing that, right? It becomes a program, because that's how Western people think. Paul defies that in us and begs us to enter into the mystery of salvation. And so today, big picture, today's an invitation to enter into the mystery of salvation, that trust that God is going to heal and cure the world and heal and cure me as part of that.
The first way that Paul talks about salvation is he talks about salvation as a past tense event. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. But because of this great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with this Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming of ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which, were prepared, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That was only two verses of Scripture, right? Two verses of Scripture, and it's the whole concept of salvation. But the thing I want us to think about first is that we have been saved. It happened in your past. It's done. Paul uses it as a past tense verb. It is accomplished. The work of Jesus is total and filled and done in you. You are a saved, beloved child of God. Some of you came to that in different ways. So in my tradition, um, about the age of 6th grade or 7th grade, you had to go through a class, and the class lasted the whole year, and on Easter Sunday, you were baptized. Uh, we called it, um, oh my gosh, I can't remember what we called it. <laughs> Shoot. Um, what did you say, Kim? Confirmation. Confirmation. Thank you. Um, because because in, our, in, my, in my background, in tradition church, you would have been baptized as a baby because baptism was a channel of grace by which God could pour out his love and mercy onto you as you developed and grew. And then at the age of 12, you had mental accountability to make your own decisions, and you were now part of the family. Um, some traditions, like the like the Church of Christ where I went to school where Justin grew up. No, no, as an adult, you make a decision and you get baptized then. And in the baptism, you are given both the forgiveness of sins and the deposit of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you and God's Spirit takes up residence in you and you become part of the temple of God. Um, I don't have an opinion on which one of those work. It seems like the Bible sort of like goes to both ways. Whenever you find something like this that splits a church, just know that it's murky. That's why good Christians in good faith disagree about stuff. Um, but, but how would you live differently if you knew through grace, by faith, you have been saved? It's done. There's nothing you can do to get yourself put out of the family of God. There's nothing you can do to incur God's wrath so much that he says, you, out. How much freedom in there is there if we can come and say, God has saved me by grace through faith. I'm in. I'm part of the family. There's no gotcha. There's no trick. Right? Most American religious traditions sort of wobble on that. They'll say, yeah, you can get pushed out. You can make decisions that put you out. What if? What if Paul is serious by using the phrase, have been saved? Past tense. Children of God. Take a deep breath. You are loved and accepted and not because of anything you've done. And that's Paul's main point here, right? You didn't do anything. You didn't earn it. Can't lose it. God loves you. That's the default stance. God loves us. 
The other thing that Paul says is Paul says that, that, that salvation is happening right now to us. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. This is my Bible memory verse this week. Um, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. St- no one. I see not one of you from a worldly point of view. I see you as image bearers of God, deeply loved, whose salvation has been accomplished. Brothers and sisters, members of the kingdom of God. Man, that's refreshing. And a good reminder, when I'm angry and I want to rip people's throats out, right? I have to stop and remind that God has loved and saved even the person that I'm angry with. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, listen, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Salvation is here. You are are saved now. The new creation has come. The kingdom of God is near is what Jesus says when we pray the Lord's Prayer, right? Right now, we are an ongoing reality of a future, the ongoing living out of a future reality. The way that things are going to be later, we right now are the first fruits of that later. We are the new creation. This concept is the most important concept, I think, to reading the New Testament. There's a book by N.T. Wright called Surprised by Hope. You should read it and memorize it. It's that good, and it will change all of your paradigms about this idea. We are a new creation. Christ was the first fruits, and we, do, we live in the wake of that. And so every one of us is potential goodness. Every one of us is a potential living out of God's image and God's call in our lives to make the world better. And that salvation for the world that's being worked out is being worked out now through us. It's through us, his temple. It's through us, his body, that salvation comes to the world. When we suffer as a church, because we are the body of Christ, that suffering is redemptive. The things that we go through are redemptive for the world in the same way that the punishment for sins was poured out on the body of Christ. It is still poured out on the body of Christ. We bear the weight of the world as we wait and we groan and we're excited. In the year 125 AD, there's a Greek philosopher named Aristides who was trying to write and explain to uh, Christianity to the Roman Empire. So there's a Roman emperor in 125 and he's like, what is this? Who are these people? We killed their dude. Why are they still hanging around? Um, and Aristides writes to the emperor, he's like, well, they love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they give freely to the one who has nothing. If they see an immigrant, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a brother. What, would it, what if people were writing letters about, like that about us right now? What if that's what we are known for? That church was known for being... The, uh, the new reality, the, the, the book of Revelation happening underneath the Roman Empire. And they had no political clout. They had no voting rights. They had no money. They had nothing besides the love of each other, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and trusting God to do things his way. And, and the Roman Empire takes note because these people are living out what Rome is a mockery of. Rome's Pax Romana, Rome's peace, was a mockery of the peace of God that the church managed to live out. Brothers and sisters, we are the of salvation that will come happening right now in real time. And Paul says, lastly, that salvation is in the future. 
Philippians 1. And the, the cool thing about Paul's letters is that um, Paul's letters are always to put out some fire because some people are acting stupid, um, except Philippians, man. He loves the guys of Philippians, at Philippi. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Brothers and sisters, you're doing it. You're doing it. You're living out what God's called us to do. And I get to be joyful over that, Paul says. Paul's never joyful. Paul feels like Paul's a cranky old man who yells at people. He's joyful about his brothers and sisters of Philippi. Look at verse 6. Being confident of this, so I'm, I can pray joyfully because I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Christ has begun a good work in us and he will carry it on to completion. God, isn't that refreshing? Isn't that such a relief? God is going to be faithful. The goodness that you find in you, the, the impulses towards doing the right thing, the freedom that comes when we love and we serve and we give and we act like Christ, those little things, Christ is going to keep doing those in your life. You get to partner with him, but that's going to keep going. Christ is faithful to finish that good work. And when you find yourself taking a step backwards, as I occasionally do, um, Christ is faithful to bring me back. Christ is faithful to complete the good work that he started. Salvation is a past event in which we can be secure. We can trust in our baptism. We can trust in the traditions of our churches. We can rely on the Holy Spirit to honor our imperfect traditions because they're just gifts of children given to a good father. Every tradition comes from a well-meaning place where people are doing their best they can to honor God and the Holy Spirit of God says, yeah, probably. it's imperfect, let's work with it. You can trust in that. You can see salvation happening in front of you and around you and through you in real time. And you can know that God will complete the good work that God started. You didn't do anything. And God will finish the good work that he started. So, what are we saved to? We are saved from the wrath of God. That plays out a different bunch of different ways. And we could think about that and talk about that all day. But we are saved from the wrath of God, which might be our own selfish desires. It might be the impact of some other, someone else's selfish desires upon me. Whatever it is, we are saved from that. We are redeemed. We are made new creation. We are saved to being the proof that God loves the world and is working to make it better. Go read Revelation 2020. And man, for whatever reason, for the last year, every sermon I do comes back to Revelation 21 and 22 because I think our vision for the kingdom of God is entirely too small. I think we have settled for I'll just stop sinning. I think we've settled for, okay, God, I'll stop cussing. Or, okay, God, I'll, I'll stop drinking so much. Or, okay, God, I'll stop lusting. Or, okay, God, I'll stop getting angry. Or, okay, God, I'll stop being petty. Or, okay, God, I'll stop being this. We've settled for these small cures, these small things, when God offers us all creation redeemed and restored and us to be a part in building that new vision towards what could be. All of those things that you want to stop doing, you should. God wants you to stop doing them. And he'll be faithful to that completion of that work. 
it's an uncomfortable conversation to have because we want to be good enough. We live in a culture and a world right now where our good enoughness is how we prove that we're worthy. Our good enoughness is how we demonstrate that we should continue to get a paycheck. Our good enoughness is how we maintain our lifestyles and buy the things and go to the experiences or whatever. And God says, no, that's not how it works here. Come, child of God, have a rest. Trust in the salvation of Jesus to cure, to heal everything around you that's broken and everything inside you that's broken. I invite the band to come back down to the stage. The hard thing about trusting in the work of Jesus, the hard thing about trusting our salvation is that we have to do it God's way. We have to do it in a way that is foreign and odd to what we expect. When I am faced with a hardship or a crisis, I grab control and I build a system, and I do a checklist, and then I find podcasts to listen to, which are the best practices, and I learn, and I get better. And it turns out, I'm still a mess, right? It turns out that, that that's just, I've just covered up one thing, right? It's just another finger in the dike. It's just another, another, another block, and then it springs a leak somewhere else. The promise of Jesus is that his death and resurrection is what breaks the cycle of sin and death in our lives. So it's important that we have a healthy understanding of communion and what we do. When we come to communion every week, we come to our own death, we come to our own body broken, our own blood poured out to take part in the exact same path that Jesus took so that we may take part in the new life that comes from it. The path of Jesus is difficult and is counterintuitive, and it's the only one that's worked. So this morning, as you come down and take communion, we take the bread, we dip it in, or you can use the, um, the prepackaged stuff. Come and be thankful. Come and be thankful for the work that Jesus has done. Come and find a place in your life, just one, just one place where you can look and say, Jesus, thank you for that. Thank you that I don't do that. Thank you I'm not doing that. Thank you that this doesn't have a hold in my life anymore. Thank you that I, thank you, Lord, that I have been saved. When we do that, when we celebrate the victorious work of Christ, we put death and sin to flight. And they have no power here. Let me pray. Lord, I'm tired of trying to do it by myself. I'm tired of my moral bootstraps. I'm tired of trying to prove to everybody that I'm good. I'm tired of the image. It's too much work, Father. It's too much work to not be who I am. And so, Lord, we come to you honestly. We come to you openly. We come to you with, with Lord, with trusting hearts because your kindness leads us to repentance. And we come to say, Lord, thank you for your salvation. Thank you for the work that you've done, Lord, to heal me. Thank you for the work you've done to deliver me. Thank you for the work you've done to move me. Thank you for the work you've done to save me, Lord. Lord, we trust in your salvation. We trust in your good work. Meet us here, Lord, at the foot of this cross. In Jesus' name, amen.